this is where I, I feel that I, that is my drive to do what I'm doing, is that I genuinely want to support other women in need. And I do it the only way I know how to do it, which is to, to go on, on challenging expeditions, to combine sports and adventure, to combine my marketing skills, my public relations skills, to talk about the awareness, um, to talk about you know, white matters. Excuse me, I'm getting quite emotional because this is something that I feel very deeply. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with a passionate, kind, and determined marketing communication expert, adventurer, social entrepreneur, author, and talented speaker. Of French, Swiss, and Filipino descent, she graduated from Sofia University before embarking on an international career with brands such as Nike, McCain Erickson, Philip Stark, and her own Brazilian fashion retail business, Beja Flor. She has a wealth of global experience in brand strategy, social entrepreneurship, advocacy, which has allowed her to excel as a marketing and communication consultant for Temasek Trust and Temasek Management Services, as well as her current role as Chief Marketing Officer at iRace Media. In her spare time, she is a passionate advocate for women's leadership and empowerment, which has enabled her to establish two award-winning not-for-profit organizations, Women on a Mission and Her Planet Earth. Her amazing talents include being an author and contributing writer to international publications such as the Huffington Post, Forbes, and Straight Times Newspaper of Singapore, as well as speaking at global organizations such as Inseed, Nike, Goldman Sachs, Singapore Woman Award, and James Cook University. I'm excited to introduce you to a finalist of the French of Asia Trophy 2018 and a recipient of the 100 Most Influential Filipino Woman in the World Award, Christine Amor-Levar. Christine, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Craig. That's, that's a very, very kind introduction and very generous. Thank you. It, well, it seems like your life has been one big adventure and you're not stopping anytime soon. I'm curious to know where you grew up and, and what aspirations did you have as a child? Um, so I grew up, I was born in the Philippines. I grew up uh, there most of my life. Uh, my father was um, an, an expat, expat uh, working in shipping in, in Manila. And my mother is from, um, from the Philippines. So they met in the Philippines and I had a wonderful childhood. You know, very grateful for that very, very loving home. Uh, multi multiracial, multicultural. My parents spoke many different languages in our home, um, and it was a very sunny kind of upbringing uh, in the Philippines. I have a great, wonderful memories of family being around because my mom is part of a very big family in the Philippines. Um, and so, so the first few years of my life in Manila were really um, full of sunshine, and and I, I do have just the best memories of a very wholesome family life. So that was from zero to five, and then from five to ten. Um, I moved uh, with the family, we moved to France uh, in the north of Paris uh, in a place called Chantilly. 
um, in a beautiful area of France too, near the forests. Um, and so the life was a little bit different then because it's the north of France. So of course, we don't have the same weather. So it, that was my first experience with culture shock, I would have to say. <laughs> Um, and but we we still had a great time as a family. You know, we settled in. Uh, it was just my my father, my mother, and my sister and I at the time. And my my brother was born in France, and so we lived there until I was ten, and then moved back to the Philippines uh, from ten to eighteen, uh, where I went back to the French school in Manila, and then uh, transferred to the international school um, of Manila, and finished up there uh, at eighteen with the, the international baccalaureate, which was quite a new diploma at the time. So very, very lucky in terms of my upbringing, um, Craig. You know, I, I look back on my childhood and very grateful that my parents were, you know, so loving. You know, they were not perfect parents. You know, they had their moments. But in general, we had a very happy family life and they were encouraging. And um, as I grew up, I did a lot of sports. I played a lot of sports growing up and they were very encouraging of that. Um, and sports in particular were my passion. It was my passion and, um, you know, gave me a lot of confidence as a child and as a young woman growing up. So, so, you know, the, the start of my life was always um, that I wanted to uh, somehow be involved in sports, work in some, some sort of field where I could uh, be connected to sports. So that was a very early aspiration for me. Yeah, wow. So, you know, very diverse there from Manila to Paris, Tokyo, um, and then, uh, sorry, and, and Paris. And then obviously from there, you moved on to work in both Tokyo, USA, and now Singapore, where you yeah. currently live with your husband and beautiful four beautiful children. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, so after Manila, when I graduated from high school, I went to university in Tokyo, in Japan, and that was a what, quite a special experience too. Um, I hadn't actually studied Japanese before moving to to Tokyo. I was hoping I, I could be um, could go to university in, um, in Paris, but it actually was my father's idea to send me to Japan. And he basically said to me, well, you're going to Japan or you're staying in Manila, so choose. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I said, fine, I'll go to Japan. And, uh, and actually, it was a, it was a great choice um, because, first of all, it was, you know, uh, culturally it was so diverse. And, and I had to learn a new language as well, which was good. I was forced to do that. I, um, I, I lived in an all-Japanese girls dorm, dormitory with Japanese nuns. I went to a Jesuit university called Sophia University, a very good school in Tokyo. Um, and I did my international business and economics degree in English uh, at the international campus of that Japanese university. But I took intensive Japanese for about three and a half years during the time I did my undergraduate. Um, I finished about six months early because I wanted to get a job um, quite quickly. Um, and, and I also got a chance to, to live in a homestay in the south of Japan on a potato farm where nobody uh, had met any foreigners before. And so that really helped me with the language. So it took me about six months to really uh, get a sense of the language. And finally, after my time in the in the homestay in the south of Japan, I came back to Tokyo dreaming in Japanese. Um, so that was really a total immersion experience for me. So Japan was very humbling in that sense. Um, you know, I learned a lot. I thought I knew Asia from being in Manila, but Japan was a whole different ball game altogether. Yeah, and my first job, yeah, my first job out of university was in Japan. It was with an American advertising agency called McCann Erickson. I was hired in their um, their university graduate program with 20 other university students. I was the first uh, non-Japanese to be taken into that program. So that in itself was quite an experience as well. And I joined a big agency there. They had about 600 employees, uh, both in Tokyo and Osaka. Um, and so very fortuitous because I ended up working on, on fantastic blue chip clients, uh, brands like Gillette, Nestle, uh, Nokia was taking off in Japan at the time. That was in the 90s. Um, so, again, a, a, you know, really a very enriching experience, very humbling experience working in Japanese um, as a foreign woman there. So I learned a lot about myself, I have to say, and um, 
and just, you know, how to try to just fit in and, and find a way to, to do my best at work that way. Yeah, very humbling experience. And, and obviously that diversity too, because, you know, you're talking about the culture of the Philippines versus that of France and then Japan. You know, it's very rare for foreigners to, to still now work in Japan, uh, especially, um, you know, straight out of university as well. So mm. a wonderful experience. How has that cultural diversity sort of really um, I suppose unearth your ability to influence and lead now um, so I, I you know I'm very um, happy that I have um, that blend of cultures and uh, that I had that at an early age it's definitely uh, been advan an advantage for me throughout my career and throughout my life in terms of just connecting with people um, so obviously I'm very proud of my roots you know my parents are very proud of um, their roots so they pass that on to me. So, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my Filipino heritage, which in itself is very mixed because my mother has Chinese roots and Spanish and Malay roots. My father is actually half French and half Swiss. Um, so when we were growing up, we would, um, uh, you know, go on holidays, you know, once a year, maybe every two years to, to Europe and, and visit family in Bordeaux. And also we had family and friends in uh, Switzerland. So very rich kind of, um, you know, culture around me uh, growing up. Um, we always had international guests coming at home. My parents used to host dinner parties with all sorts of nationalities. So that was kind of a, uh, the norm, I suppose. Um, and then coming to Japan, you know, a country with such a rich cultural heritage, you know, and, and history, um, that in itself for me was, you know, was an incredible experience, just learning uh, not just a new language, but learning about a new culture, a new cuisine, about the traditions and about the business practices also of the Japanese, you know, which are quite unique. Uh, in terms of how they um, how they position, how they speak with um, you know, superiors versus inferiors, or rather in the, the hierarchy of the company, um, and so I suppose you know having that experience has is, it's always a benefit when you're dealing with uh, you know as a boss or as a colleague with or as a friend you know uh, with people around you because hopefully you can put yourself in their shoes a little bit more so you you can connect in many different levels you can. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, relate to some of their cultural differences more easily. Um, so I'm really, really um, happy that I had the chance to to live, you know, and work in different countries. Because after Japan, then I moved to the United States. And the interesting thing was, you know, the Philippines used to be a, an American colony. So the Philippines was colonized by the Spaniards for 350 years, um, you know, from 1521 when Magellan came to the Philippines. And then uh, after that, it was colonized by the Americans for 50 years. So we say that in the Philippines, we had 350 years of the convent and 50 years of Hollywood. Um, and then coming to the U.S., I thought I knew the American culture, you know, from growing up in the Philippines. Um, and and so on one side, it, yes, we, we had a lot of similarities, you know, the language, English language came from the, the Americans, really. Um, bas the love of basketball, that's a big sport in the Philippines that you, you have in the United States. But honestly, I, w I still experience culture shock just in terms of the work ethic, ethic, uh, you know, and, and working for a very American company. So when I moved to the United States, I ended up working for Nike at the global headquarters in Portland, Oregon. And I was just 23 at the time. Um, and that in itself was quite an interesting experience, um, working with, uh, you know, a lot of Americans. There were a lot of international people working in uh, the Nike campus, too. But the majority were still Americans and many Oregonians um, were, were, were there. Uh, you know, a fantastic company to work for. Um, you know, I met uh, the most incredible people. I used to pinch myself, you know, uh, when I realized that I was driving to to this office, to the Nike campus, working there and loving sports so much. But again, you know, the the work ethic is so different from Japan. 
uh, and later on when I when I moved to Nike France, um, you know, uh, for the World Cup, actually, I was there for the 1998 World Cup working on events and marketing um, again. And then working with the French, that was another experience altogether. Very different, um, you know, management style. Um, and so a lot of adjustment. But I suppose all these experiences are, again, very enriching and force you to just um, be more agile and in terms of adjusting, um, you know, how you deal with colleagues, your management style, uh, what works best in meetings and what doesn't work with certain certain cultures. So always a good learning uh, process. Yeah, definitely a lot of learnings there. So, so let's dive deep a little bit in here. What were the differences, uh, let, let's take this in two approaches, in both a brand aspect from working in, for, in Japan versus mm-hmm. say working at Nike in America and also from a culture and leadership point of view? So in Japan, I was on the agency side, you know, and so in Japan, the, the, the culture, um, you know, because I was still with McCann Erickson then. Um, and so the culture of the client, the importance of the client is, is uh, was extremely, um, you know, different when you were on the agency side. So I felt that, um, you know, the, the client in Japan was almost revered to, to a different level. We, um, the, the type of Japanese language that you used with a client versus a colleague was also different. There was a, there's a, there's a more polite form of, um, of speaking that you would use with your clients. Even when we would walk into a meeting room, if a client was with us, since we were the agency, the client uh, had to uh, sit in the, in the place of honor uh, at the meeting room, so away from the door with the best view of the room. So all those little details were very important in Japan, you know, and, and just those sensi- sensitivities to the rank was very much uh, felt, you know, was very much an important aspect. Um, when I moved to the United States, I was working um, for Nike, which, you know, in a way we were um, the client of a few different agencies. Uh, we also had clients, obviously, but it was more on the sales side, you know, Foot Locker, all those big companies that sell, sold our products were. But I was working on the marketing side, so I was much more of a client working with different agencies, PR agencies in the region. Um, I was responsible for public relations in um, South America at the time, Latin America, in fact. Um, and so we dealt with a lot of different agencies. So, again, the, the relationship was different. The culture was, of course, very different. Uh, American um, are very straightforward in many ways, how they speak. Uh, in business, uh, in Japan, you know, it's very hard to get a yes or a no. So you often don't know where you stand. You really have to read the signs. Um, and then working with the French was a whole different ballgame altogether. You know, I'm part French, so I felt that's fine. That, that's my culture. I will know how to deal with them. But I had the hardest time <laughs> working with the French. When I got there, after working with the Japanese and the Americans, I it took me a long time to just understand that... Um, the fact that there was no uh, decision coming out of a meeting was the norm (laughs) and that, you know, you need a lot of patience and and you had to work um, different ways to get consensus for, you know, your ideas. Um, And that was very personally very challenging for me, adjusting from a very efficient kind of straightforward American system, uh, having gone through the the duress of the Japanese business system as well, you know, learning to bid your time and then coming um, in a French, um, it was an American company in France, but the majority of the employees were French. So so that in itself was, for me, very difficult. I had to adjust uh, from working in a global office into a, a small a local office in comparison. 
So on one side, you're closer to uh, on the ground projects, as you can, as you probably know from you know working in marketing or talking to people who work in marketing. You're when you're in a country office, you're much closer to uh, on the ground events, projects, and that was the same when I was working and running the marketing in Singapore for Nike. But on the other side, when you're at the global uh, level, you have access to much more information, global strategies, uh, regional strategies, um, matrix. You work around the matrix. So again, very different um, experience. And both, I suppose, have their pros and cons, uh, you know, uh, in my experience. You know, some, sometimes some, some of the processes are frustrating and other, other times in, in local markets, you know, it's easier to get things done if you manage to crack the system in the local culture. <laughs> some, some great little insights there. And, mm. you, you know, obviously observation, uh, the way you gesture, the, you know, the, the power of listening plays such a crucial role there rather than just speaking. Uh, when you're communicating so in those different countries. But, you know, it really also depends on the culture because I realized that when I arrived in the United States, if you were in a meeting and you were not really speaking up, it was equivalent to not having an opinion. When in Japan or in France, you know, they don't really appreciate uh, you speaking up uh, so so much right away, I felt, you know. So um, so really the, the cultural difference are quite pronounced. Um, and, you know, it really takes a, a, a tuning yourself a little bit to to see what works in this type of office. What what does it take to get the job done? You know, I even used to change my accent a little bit to make it sound more American when I was, uh, in the United States to to make people understand me better and to sure. make to make me fit in more to, so that they thought that I'm one of them, you know, and then I'll I'll get stuff done faster. Um, so I, I used to do that. I used to catch myself doing that. <laughs> That there was something I learned very quick when I first moved overseas, and, and the advice was forget what you did at home and just go, just totally immerse yourself in the new place you're in and go with it because otherwise you'll get very frustrated and you'll get lost along the way and, and you may get misinterpreted as well. So true, so true. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's about being agile and adapting, you know, but keeping, and I think it's a balance between keeping what you know, what you feel is right. In your job at the time or if you have an idea that you want to fight for you know keeping that passion because it's also easy to be discouraged you know if you get um, road, roadblocks along the way when you're trying to fight for a creative idea or um, or a project that you really feel is, is the right thing for for the market um, but at the same time you have to find how to work the system otherwise it's too frustrating you know so talking about that creative side how have you seen say brand or advertising change you know from the beginning of your career to where you are now you know what are the probably the key things huge that you've noticed huge difference i mean in the in the old days in the 90s the you know advertising seemed very simple you know you had the media plan uh, majority was still uh, majority of the client's budget was mostly on tv um, you know, a big chunk of it was and print advertising. It's completely changed. When, when I after, in the span of about eleven years, when I was moving from, um, you know, Japan, uh, you know, the United States, France, coming to Singapore, um, you know, and, and Nike was quite an avant-garde company in terms of uh, how they were, um, you know, experimental with different uh, types of media for their for their marketing budgets in different regions. So we were doing a lot of digital advertising spent already in um, in the you know around two thousand. In 2007, 2008, we were all doing a lot of uh, digital marketing, and about 30 or 40 percent of our marketing budget was already spent on um, digital marketing, which a lot of other companies weren't doing in, uh, then. And that's changed even more. And there's new forms of media, obviously, that have come out. Um, you know, in terms of uh, you know ads that come uh, you know on on social media uh, banners, 
um, you know, that are um, that are tied to your the search en engine on your Google. So as you know, when people are looking for something, suddenly uh, ads pop up on their Facebook, and so all of that didn't exist, you know, many many years ago, and so and that's still disrupting the whole industry, um, which is exciting on one part, you know, because I actually personally love social media, so so I, I do a lot of uh, work in social media with the marketing work that I do as a consultant and also with my nonprofits. A lot of the traction I've got with sponsors and clients has been because I'm very active and I'm, I'm a big um, supporter of social media, you know, the, the way you, you curate on LinkedIn or Facebook, um, Twitter, to some extent, it's not as big in some parts of Asia as it is in US or UK. Um, you know, and so and so that's that's a great tool. And so, you know, of course, the whole industry is changing and evolving. And, and to be honest, it's I think it's hemorrhaging a little bit, um, the, especially the advertising industry in itself. It's it's not easy to survive, I think, in, in that ever-changing industry you know it was already tough then but i think it's tougher now it's quite a uh, the marketplace is quite cluttered at times and so getting your voice heard is a, is a big challenge and it requires a lot of innovation now too doesn't it absolutely and i think a lot of it has moved towards um you know human stories a lot of big companies are re-looking at their csr it used to be just a component of their of their you know of their company strategy to some extent but now it's 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 come in center stage and for me uh, you know working with my two nonprofit uh, organization women in a mission and her plan i've really seen the difference in the last just few years where i'm getting more companies approaching me um you know specifically wanting to try to tie some of their uh, strategies and initiatives with CSR works in many different levels, not, not just because it's been demanded by their shareholders, but it's also been demanded by their employees. So that is also something that is rocking, you know, the world in, in, our, in to some extent, you know, it's, it used to be just a nice to have to do a bit of good, you know, it's a bit of CSR, but now it's a requirement. I think, you know, if you're not doing it, you're, something's wrong with you. Yeah. So talking about a little bit about disruption, you, you, you had this, beautiful life where you're, you're combining your passions of both sport and marketing when you're working at Nike and you've come through to Singapore. You then disrupted your journey and took on the entrepreneurial approach by founding Beja Floor Brazil Fashion. How did you find that transition from being an employee to becoming an owner and managing director? Mm. So uh, at the time, so I was still at uh, Nike in Singapore and I was trying to decide what was next for me. I was finding it to be honest, I was finding it very difficult. I had two young kids at the time. I was working many hours traveling. I was working on weekends for different marketing and sports events. I wasn't really seeing my kids. Um, and I had just uh, gone through a divorce, uh, you know, kind of a lot of things going on. And I could, I felt it wasn't really sustainable. I, you know, I wasn't seeing my children enough. I was missing a lot of things at school. And so I was trying to decide what to do next. And to be honest, I actually considered uh, going back to school and doing an MBA. Um, or taking that money and starting a business. Um, and so I chose, uh, you know, starting a business. And and that was really, I think, honestly, the best choice I did because I learned so much about running a small business um, in Singapore and, and in the region. Um, and I, I started Beja Flor because, you know, I, I missed that connection with Brazil. I had spent so much time in Brazil when I was working for Nike and I really had a special connection with that country. So I 
I kind of came up with an idea to do something in retail and, and I've always loved fashion and I decided to do that with Brazil, which had incredible and still has incredible, um, you know, beautiful fashion coming out from that country. Um, and so that's the reason I chose that. And, and to be honest, I found it liberating. I found it as much as I love Nike and I still love Nike. I can only wear Nike and I have many friends who still work at Nike around the world. You know, it's, it's very much a cult kind of culture there. Um, I, I, I left Nike and I never looked back and I felt you know, liberated uh, to be out of the corporate world, world to some extent um, and to do my own thing. And I also met you know, my second husband who's an entrepreneur who really inspired me to do that, to take the leap. And he said, I'll help you, you know, I'll, I'll guide you and whatever you know, support you need. And so that was a huge part of it, you know, having his support. And you know, he, had, he had just bought a company uh, in Singapore that was doing horse racing publishing and he had bought us you know he had a staff of four at the time it's currently grown to a staff of 26 people and you know his family's an entrepreneurial family so he gave me a lot of encouragement to be honest and you know I could I probably wouldn't have taken the leap without his 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 support and encouragement and and so I found it liberating I, I found it difficult you know a retail is in Singapore is on seven days a week we never close uh, you only close two days over Chinese New Year you're op- the malls are open from 10 to 10 p.m. Uh, you know when you're when you when it's your own boutique, you're looking at all your costs. You're looking at the rent on Orchard Road. So yeah, it wasn't that easy. It was the pressure was on, you know. And so, but I learned a lot. I learned a tremendous amount, you know. And I enjoyed the experience. And I, in a, you know, and I was able to to decide, you know, how to run the staff and how to, you know, how to spend the marketing budget, obviously, and and kind of make those decisions um, as the as the as the boss, you know, which I enjoyed, and from then on, I kind of never turned back. So even my work uh, after that, because I worked as a consultant, uh, you know, for many years uh, with, with different organizations, namely the ones you mentioned, uh, Temasek Management Services and Temasek Trust, which are part of uh, Temasek Holding, which is the equivalent of a Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund here. Um, you know, I've enjoyed that freedom. I've enjoyed uh, having one foot back in the corporate world, but uh, being able to to you know to to manage my own time work as a consultant and then devote my time to also my nonprofit work um you know with women on a mission and her planet earth and obviously supporting my husband's company as his as his chief marketing officer running his marketing uh, team over there so so it's been a very liberating experience and i've actually i feel i found my balance that way i'm very busy but i found my balance in terms of how i feel i can use my assets and my experience and my and my skills the best way I kind of feel like you're uh, the only time your family gets with you is if they're going out for a, if they're running along with you at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's so funny you said that because it's true. I have to schedule it. You know, it's 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 a funny thing to say, but you know, I, it's hard for me to sit down uh, and play le- uh, like Lego with my kids. Although I know sometimes I should be doing it more, <laughs> but I I have to schedule uh, time with you know the kids to to do things. And, and that's when I'm able to really focus very, you know, perfectly on them. And, and, I, and so I do that. I do that. It's part of my schedule. I just I operate better that way when it's actually in my schedule. And I, I know that I'm going to do it, you know. <laughs> Beautiful. So, so, <laughs> so you have you've always had an eye for adventure and you found a way to combine that with some amazing advocacy and social entrepreneurship progress. What is it inside of you that drives you to want to make a difference in global women's advocacy movements? So, you know, I, I didn't uh, plan my career that way. Um, my, my passion had always been, I want to work in sports, I want to work in marketing, that's what I enjoyed. Uh, you know, I, I've had other options in my life to work for different brands, great brands, you know, um, 
in luxury or you know there are many french brands um, that uh, that are in the luxury industry and all that but i realized that i really need to be engaged in what i do otherwise it's very difficult for me to 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 work efficiently so sports was always something and then and then later on in life i i met um, you know a very interesting lady who became my partner with uh, women on a mission and she was a, she's a mountaineer who climbed everest and on the banner, uh, on the sorry, on the on the summit of Everest, she unfolded a banner that that said "Bearing the flag for women everywhere." And and to be honest, I think that was really my aha moment, what they call the aha moment, um, when I realized what, what wow she's um, she's up there in the summit of the world. She's you know taking a big risk. She's a mother as well, and she's she has this banner. You know, it really hit me in the gut. And when she came back down um, to Singapore, she explained to me that she had been volunteering with a charity in the UK called Women for Women International. And that was the banner she was holding was from them, um, that this charity has been around for 20 years and supports women survivors of war. And so you, when you start you know, doing the research and realizing that there are so many women out there who live in conflict zones or in, in de- developing countries or who have no opportunities, you know, to to have a, a good education, you know, uh, you know, to to have a good life. To they live in danger areas. They've been, you know, abused. They've been violated. And it, I think at, at that moment, I just realized I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I've been given so many opportunities in my life, you know. And and women are 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 the ones that are the most vulnerable to climate change the most vulnerable to armed conflicts, to, to sexual violences. And so something has to be done. This is where I, I feel that I, that is my drive to do what I'm doing, is I genuinely want to support other women in need. And I do it the only way I know how to do it, which is to, to go on, on challenging expeditions, to combine sports and adventure, to combine my marketing skills, my public relations skills, to talk about the awareness, um, to talk about you know, why it matters. Excuse me, I'm getting quite emotional because this is something that I feel very deeply. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's what drives me to to do what I do, you know, and with uh, with both those nonprofits, it's it's really coming from a very deep place. Uh, and that's so important, you know, to really make a difference and to really be able to empower and influence and ch- make a change. It has to come from deep and it has to be emotional. Uh, so can you, you know? From a woman on mission and both her planet Earth side of uh, point of view, can you explain to the audience a little bit more around sure. what they do and how they can be involved? So, um, so women on a mission, um, as I mentioned, I was set. I set that up with a couple other um, partners, Valérie, the one who climbed Everest, and another uh, French lady called Karine, and we set that up in 2012. And basically, women on a mission supports and raises awareness and funds. For women who have been abused, so when I say abuse, I mean women survivors of war, of domestic violence, of, uh, you know, of rape and other forms of abuse. Um, Her Planet Earth is a sister NGO of Women on a Mission that I set up about two years ago, which uh, works in, under the same kind of uh, strategies and mechanics. Uh, basically, we also organize challenging treks and expeditions, but we support uh, women who have been uh, who are underprivileged and who are affected by climate change. Because as you, if you look at climate change, it's a global phenomenon, but the effects are really felt locally. And the, the poorest people are the most vulnerable to, to climate change. And if you look at the statistics and the numbers, the majority of poor people around the world are women. So the basically both uh, entities uh, raise funds and awareness for women 
but one is focused on abused women and the other uh, women, yeah, underprivileged women uh, affected by climate change. Most of them are living in rural areas. Uh, both uh, entities uh, organize challenging expeditions to off-the-beaten track locations around the world, places like Antarctica, deserts in Iran, you know, um, uh, Jordan, uh, we, we've trekked across deserts in uh, Ethiopia and the Danakil Depression. Uh, we've trekked several times in the Himalayas, uh, done sailing trips in the Philippines. We, you know, as you mentioned, we just came back from crossing, crossing the, the biggest cave in the world in Vietnam. So, you know, we, I put together these expeditions that are challenging and, and different and exciting. And we basically ask teammates to join and, and self-fund the trip. Um, we do get occasionally uh, some sponsors that help with some of the costs, but generally the teammates need to be prepared to, to, pay, for, to pay for their expedition costs. And in addition to that, we ask them to raise funds for a charity partner that we have chosen and curated and worked with on a specific program. So, for example, um, the, the last expedition to Vietnam, uh, we partnered with UN Women Vietnam on, on, on fundraising for programs that help rural women in different parts of Vietnam who are underprivileged and also of ethnic minority. And these are programs specifically focused on helping them find the right crops that will be climate change resilient, that need less pesticide, that they then can sell for a better livelihood. And, and the program actually helps all the way to distribution meaning that once the crops are harvested, you know, uh, giving the women support to find ways to sell their products, package it, you know, market it, etc. So it's a it's a, that kind of program that helps the livelihood of the women that but are also programs that are, um, you know, efficient in a, in a country that's experiencing a lot of climate change um, and, and, you know, um, degra degradation from um, the, the big swings in, in the in the weather. Um, so that's basically uh, that in a nutshell. Um, I hope I'm explaining it well. Um, so basically, we take new teammates every year. We we have repeat teammates on occasion, and the teammates range from 22 years old to 60 years old, all nationalities and backgrounds. Most of them are living in Singapore, but we have teammates from all over the world, from Australia, UK, US, Dubai, uh, Hong Kong. Um, people contact us, get on our wait list. Um, we're very lucky to to have that, you know, and uh, and want to join. And and you know, I realize that there's really a movement out there. Uh, in terms of wanting to do this kind of travel that's that's empowering for for the person going on the trip you know they grow and they, you know they train for it they grow uh, you know from the experience but they also give back and they feel part of the whole process because it's a process that is you know we start three four months before the expedition we, we then we go on the expedition we do fundraising events uh, pre or post uh, we stay connected. We we engage with a charity a partner that we're raising funds for. We find out more. We we connect them with our network. So it's a full on kind of experience. And a lot of the teammates, they sometimes they you know they they join a team. They what they don't realize is that it's a lifetime relationship, really, because um, you know once they're one of our teammates, they're a teammate for life in a way. You know, they, they we stay connected in the sisterhood, and it's very special in that way. I love this approach. The the benefits, the long-term influence is three, four-fold. It's, um, it's fascinating how you've pulled this together. And I love the aspect of working with the people from Vietnam to allow them to be self-sustainable. So teaching on and providing just yes. the tools yes. to get them started and then they it's can so look after themselves. Because that's where the real power is, you know, empowering yeah, them. Yeah, and we're learning so much, you know. And when we were in Vietnam, the, the team from UN Women uh, Vietnam flew to see us because we were, they're, they be, they're based in Hanoi and we were actually in, in the middle of Vietnam, you know, getting to the caves. 
and they came out, they flew, three of them came out and did a full presentation and we spent a day with them and they really explained to us what the programs are about, what their work is really about. And you realize the complexity of the work on the ground that they have to do because they're not just working with the, the farmers, educating them, explaining to them the benefits of what they're offering. Because, you know, that's a huge piece of the work too, convincing the, the farmers that this is actually going to benefit them. But they're working at the government level with community leaders. They're working with their own network uh, globally of UN, uh, getting the researchers involved, the right uh, technology to share um, getting uh, you know corporate partners to to come in and help, working with logistics people or people who can distribute the produce um, once uh, it's harvested, etc. It's a massive, massive piece of work, and you know I'm very uh, you know I admire them so much for for this and and understanding uh, the program better makes us hopefully better fundraisers too for it because you know then you you explain this to your community. And I gave a talk yesterday to 30 women about exactly this and they were so incredibly supportive but we have to explain how it works you know for them to really understand the benefit of their donation so for those listeners out there who you know you're listening to this they probably want to delve in a bit deeper to to understand the relevance and i suppose the enormity of the sondong caves that you visited in vietnam you know they've only been open to the public i think since 2013 there's That's a, right. There's That's a lot right. of work going on to protect them from a her- world heritage point of view as well. That's it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The whole national park is actually where, where the caves are found. And the history of the cave is really fascinating, um, Craig. So as you mentioned, you know, it's only been open to the public since 2013. Uh, but it was actually discovered by a local lumberjack in 1991. Um, you know, he was kind of uh, traveling through the, the forest, the jungle, and, and had and actually felt this strong wind coming from an opening. And at the time, he he got a bit frightened. He 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 thought it was from monsters from their mythology, you know, mm. um, and so didn't venture in. And it was only uh, really explored uh, uh, by the British um, kind of caving association that sent a, a group of explorers in into 2009, 2010. It was completely uh, explored, and um, you know, at that point. Uh, and they realized the, the, you know, the scale of this of this game. I mean, it's the biggest in the world. It's uh, at the largest point. I think it's 200, uh, 200 meters uh, wide by one hundred fifty meters tall. Um, you know, it's, it's it has its own ecosystem. It has a jungle inside. Uh, it has a, a huge river flowing through it, all the way through. Um, you know, it has uh, it has uh, holes in some of the ceilings where the limestone has collapsed. So it it, it offers like uh, on some occasions sunbeams come through uh, at different points of the day. Uh, so in, in, in those places where the sun comes through, you know, the jungle flourishes just below. And then as you continue deep into the cave, you know, it's it's dark and, and damp and cold actually, because it's quite deep underground. And you have insects, insects that have never seen the light that are all white, that are just wandering about. Um, and all sorts of incredible um, kind of archaeological, um, you know, there are fossils that are millions of years old that we've seen when we were uh, crossing it. Uh, stalactites and stalagmites that are some of the biggest in the world. They have cave, what they call cave pearls that are um, have been formed by, it takes hundreds of years to, to, to form these cave pearls. And apparently it's done by uh, dripping water from the, ce- from the ceiling of the cave that drips on a piece of, of sand over hundreds of years and forms a perfectly round cave pearl. 
So, it, you know, it's a fascinating place. You know, I can't, I can't say enough how beautiful it is. And, you know, while you're tre- when you're trekking through the cave, you're concentrating really hard. You have your helmet on and you have your torch and you're really watching where you put your feet because it's very dark around you and it's very slippery and damp. Basically, we had you know, our feet in the water and mud for the whole five days. And then when you do pause and you look up, and look around you, you just get reminded of how mind-blowing this whole experience is, that you're in the middle of the, this this massive cave that probably looked this way millions of years ago. So it really, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, it really felt like we were stepping back in time. It, it was an awe-inspiring you know, experience. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, I can my mind kind of went on this great little journey then and it's like <laughs> I was in a little movie and uh, it's a place I'd love to go and see at some point. It, it, it sounds well, you must go, Greg. I really recommend it. Yeah. So, so what habits and rituals, rituals do you follow to ensure that you lead an active and healthy lifestyle while also sure. having the energy to perform mm. at your best every single day? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> I, so my problem is I have a lot of things going on. And so every minute of the day is really, is really full of something. And sometimes I think it would be good for me just to sit down and do nothing, but I never do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I do try to, I'm very organized. I plan the week, you know, to the minute, as I said, you know, everything is organized in my schedule. I try to stick to it. Um, you know, with time for exercise, you know, and business meetings, lun- business lunches or, you know, lunches with friends, things to do with the kids, you know, take one child to, I have to take one child to the, to, um, uh, to a doctor this afternoon, you know, there's a whole bunch of things happening. It's, a, it's, every day is very different. It's never the same. It's never boring. Um, so I, I have to say that I'm enjoying it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very busy, um, Sometimes, you know, I wish the day was longer. I'm lucky I don't have to sleep that much, so I don't sleep that much, but I know it's healthier to sleep more. <laughs> so it's a struggle, to be very honest, Craig. It's really a struggle, you know. I have four kids, as, as you know. Um, one is actually at university already, so I have three. I still have three at home. Uh, I have an ex-husband, I have a husband, I have a dog. <laughs> so there's a lot going on, but, you know, I'm really enjoying it, as I said. You know, it's it's true that it's busy. I, I do try to find time to reflect, meditate a bit, you know, and and take stock. But there's so many exciting things happening. You know, I'm, I'm really engaged in what I'm doing. It's not work most of the time. I love it. You know, planning an event. We're, we're planning an event now for... Um, for our Vietnam uh, mission, you know, and, you know, just even that takes a lot of time and effort, but it's, it's fun for me. I really enjoy it. So I, again, you know, I feel like I'm able to bring in uh, some of my skills and experience, you know, all the stuff I used to do with Nike and marketing and, you know, uh, and, and bring that uh, to bear, you know, in terms of uh, trying to, to do the work I do with my, with women on a mission and her planet earth. So, you know, people say, yes, you're very busy, but I, you know, it's not work for me. I, when you love what you do, as you know, it's not work, right? You just, you're so engaged in it. You know, you're so focused. You don't even see the time go by. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the struggle is just trying to find time to fit everything in a day. <laughs> so we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. Now, you may have already answered this first one, but we'll see if you can come up with a different answer. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, well, obviously in Vietnam, <laughs> you know, that crossing the biggest cave in the world. So that happens quite a lot, which is good. That happens a lot. You know, I, I'm really always looking for experiences that I've never done. You know, I really thrive on that. So for me, it's very much tied to the travel, you know, going to places I've never been and 
doing things I've never done. Actually, the next in the next few weeks, I'm giving a speech about um, my experience in, Antar- in Antarctica, but in French this time. And so most of my presentations have been um, to English-speaking audiences. And uh, I was asked by the French community to do one in, in French, which, you know, I'm probably maybe a little bit more comfortable in English. So that's a new thing for me. And, you know, I, I accept it because why not? You know, I'd love to share um, our, our, my experience and my team's experience in Antarctica. But um, those little experiences that push you a little bit outside of your comfort zones are really healthy. Um, and so I often try to just accept those opportunities and, and try them, you know. And so I think that's kind of how I lead, I lead my life, you know, try new things all the time. I enjoy that. I thrive on that. <laughs> love it. So what is the one question that you would love to solve? Mm. Oh, well, you know, one of the big ones uh, for me um, you know, in, in some of the work that I do is how do I get more men to support um, these issues? You know, because when we talk about, uh, you know, s- sexual assault uh, of women, you know, sexual assault of children, uh, human trafficking, a lot of these issues are thought of as women's issues, but they're also men's issues. You know, these are some, this is someone's daughter that could be, uh, or wife or sister that could be, you know, uh, abused and all that. So for me, I think one of the big ones is to how do I, how do I get more men uh, involved in supporting uh, gender equality and women's issues? You know, because a lot of times, you know, this is International Women's Week, you know, and and month, and so you know, I've been asked to do a few talks, and it's funny because it's during this month, you know, that's when people look for more women speakers, and a lot of times during those talks, the majority of the attendees are women. You might get a few men on occasion, but the truth is we need to have more men, uh, you know, kind of more men champions, you know, uh, that would come and say, you know, that's not fair. You know, we should have more women uh, represented on the selection of interview uh, interviewees. You know, we should have more women on the board, you know, and it shouldn't be just women claiming that this should be the case. We should have more men kind of supporting that because, as you know, diversity is it's good even for business, it's good for the world, it's good in so many ways, it's good examples to our children. Um, so I think that's a big one, you know, I, I don't think this is something that can be solved right away. We're definitely moving in the right direction. There's progress every year. In some countries, maybe more progress than others. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and men in, in my career and journey have been huge supporters, you know, of, of, of me and, and have given me many opportunities. So I'm very grateful to men, uh, you know, along the journey for all the, you know, the support and opportunities that, that they have thrown my way and, and, and all the help they've been given me. But, you know, I think it's important to try to find a way to bring more men to the table to fight for gender equality and to support, um, you know, women's careers and women's opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, who has left the greatest impression and had the most impact on your career and why? Um, I would have to say that maybe my second boss at Nike had the biggest impact on, on my life and my career. You know, I admired him very much. So he was a, he's a gentleman who's um, actually um, a British Jamaican, was um, working uh, at Nike when I was very young. Then he was my first boss, gave me a lot of opportunities. And I, I think his management style really inspired me. I saw how he, how he, how he rallied our team. And, you know, we did a lot of work in uh, different markets together as a team. And I would have to say that his leadership style inspired me the most, even today. Um, I kind of emulate it in, in, in some ways, I, I believe, you know, and my leadership style is definitely much more about putting empathy at the core of it. I believe that's that's a very important ingredient in good leadership, uh, you know, and when I take my teams on expeditions, I really 
look at more about how can I care for them rather than, you know, tell them what to do, obviously. Um, and so it's much more of that kind of leadership. You know, it's a very caring, um, empathetic, uh, you know, type of leadership um, and, and supportive leadership. Um, and, and I found my, my, my style. I found my style that way uh, over the years, the last few years especially. Um, I feel more comfortable that way. So it's a very caring and, and inclusive type of leadership. And that I feel that brings out the best in people and really makes them believe, you know, that if you believe in them, they really believe in themselves and, and they really put out the best of themselves. I've seen it so many times on different occasions. You've got so much to offer. So how can people learn more about what you do? And also, what is the best way for people to connect with you? Um, so they, you could send them to um, a few websites. You know, my website, my personal website is christinamorlevar.com. And there are, is information to connect with me that way. Um, obviously, I'd love them to check out uh, Women on a Mission. So womenmission.com and herplanetearth.com. Uh, with all the links to all our social media and what's happening and the expeditions coming up and, and our events and all that. So lots going on. And I, you know, I really look forward. I, I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn as well. They can look for me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, so so thank you so much, Craig. You know, I'm, I'm, I hope your audience will, will will reach out and connect with me as well. I'm always looking to, to meet new people and connect that way. We'll, we'll put those links on the show notes for this podcast so people can find them uh, easily. Mm-hmm. Christine, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation about talking about your very diverse global upbringing from Manila to France and then back to Manila. And then obviously your growth working in some completely diverse cultures such as Japan, where it's very traditional to America, where it's very open and allows everyone to you know, share and, and have their voice heard all the time. And then being challenged again by by going into France, where it's a completely different way of working, where you you're not sure whether a decision's been made or not that day, <laughs> and and when it's actually going to be made, to to then going on and being a an entrepreneur and social entrepreneur and taking that that inner belief and trust in in yourself that you can go on and lead and develop your own project, and to really feel the the fruits and the benefits of all that hard work that you put in there. And now to see what you're doing with Woman on a Mission and Her Planet Earth is just really inspiring. Like I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And we... Oh, me too, Greg. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure uh, talking to you. And, and thanks for making the time to interview me and to allow me to share, you know, part of the, that journey. Um, and I hope we, we stay in touch. I really appreciate um, the conversation too. Yes, definitely. And I look forward to hearing how your your expedition to Iceland goes later this year. Um, I'm sure that's <laughs> yeah. going to be another you know, beautiful experience for you and the people that you bring on. And, and it's supporting some, some people that really need your help as well. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Craig. Such a pleasure. Today's Active CEO Wellness Tip is about being humble and having humility. Humble is something that describes a person or thing that is modest, simple, or lowly. You know, it can function as a verb. One can humble oneself, which means to bring oneself low, behave modestly, or make oneself vulnerable. Humility, on the other hand, though, it means the same thing, is an attribute which makes it a noun. You know, a person can have the quality of humility as a character trait, indicating that they are not full of self-importance or pride, but instead without an inflated opinion of one's worth. 
when we see CEOs or, or great leaders that truly have an impact on people and the ability to influence, they generally have a humbleness and humility about them. But it's also a challenge to have that and also ensure that you know what you're talking about or have a sense of power as well. So that balance of how do you get that charisma and that character into the way you speak and act, as well as staying humble and having humility at the same time. You know, that ability to not make you not be pretentious and put yourself up and above someone is so important. Everyone has their own self-worth. And so it's important for you to continually develop the character trait of both humility and being humble to ensure that you have the greatest impact on the people that you are working with and the people around you. Because as soon as you lose that and you start trying to drive too much power and it's too much about yourself, people will become quickly irritated and start to turn off. So you don't want to be constantly bragging about your accomplishments or or refusing to credit those who have helped you along the way. You know, we often admire those who don't tend to flaunt their credentials or wealth, but who simply are very comfortable that they can help others and that they are, you know, I suppose, very comfortable in what they've achieved, but they're not overwhelming everyone by it. What an amazing interview with Christine Amor Lever today. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful soul and, and passionate person who's had a wonderfully diverse career, uh, starting out in her life in the Philippines, going on to France and back to Philippines. You know, growing up in, say, the Philippines is, is quite a open social. Uh, there's the mix of the third world and also the very wealthy there. And it, you have, it brings that kind of humbleness and humility out in you when you're living in that place. I love the aspect where she left high school and went straight into university at Sophie University in Japan. And she was in a, in a small kind of girl's boarding dorm and she totally immersed herself in the culture and the language. And obviously that led to a, a wonderful start to her career at McCain uh, a big advertising global company, but being part of the Japanese team and getting to work with their passions of sport and brand with the likes of Nike and Nokia and some other really, really big brands around that time. It obviously set her up to then move into America where she got to work with one of the biggest global brand, brands in the world. You know, Nike, it, it's, it's huge. So for someone so young to get that chance and, and have that ability to to work in a phenomenal place, being surrounded by the things that you love and are passionate about. She she has this real entrepreneurial spirit and you can sense it in the way she talks and the way she interacts. You know, she's always on the go and she has to schedule her family in, which is really interesting. She, she loves her family, but she's so dedicated to her purpose in life. And you can really see that coming out now with her woman on a mission and her planet Earth, where it's not just about her purpose but it's about a greater purpose and getting people involved and ensuring that the world has becomes a better place and that people are evolving and growing because of the experiences they are involved in so I'm really really impressed with what she's doing and i so look forward to how it continues to grow in the future and oh, going to iceland and 
another trip later this year. I'm really looking forward to her insights and her experience and, and how that all evolves. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.